Andrew, it's a great pleasure that I can be with you and help you to make that big jump. Um, it's not easy, I tell you, but I'm sure you can. Now, in the, these blasphemic times we live at the moment, you well remember uh, the question why God didn't get tenure at Oxford University. <laughs> And uh, the reasoning was, A, he only had one publication. <laughs> B, he only cited himself. <laughs> C, he skipped teaching because he only sent his son to classes. <laughs> now, of course, and the fourth question is, what else did he do in addition to creating the world? And that question already has been answered. But I think what is in addition a particular mark of, of Andrews, I think during all the whatever 30 or 40 years I've known him, he always has been and has remained a decent, kind, friendly person and a good friend. And for that, I thank you. Now, you know, we make the joke usually that we know a lot, but only half of our results usually is true. We just don't know which half. <laughs> and that, of course, is a huge problem. But I think with saying so, we, we have some insight. And I would like to keep that in mind while I'm talking about several historical and more recent aspects. The second general remark is that Medawar divided science and scientists into two categories. There are those who beg for the question, such as, you know, does IL-57 influence regulatory T-cells at full moon? <laughs> and you can devise experiments that either negate that or positively demonstrate. Only the positive ones you, of course, can publish then in the Journal of Immunology. <laughs> but there is a second category, and those are the, those who observe. And of course, being a vet, you know, observe diseases. And say, I don't understand why this animal or this patient is sick. What's behind the pathophysiology? And I think that's a bit what I'd like to bring over because I think uh, Andrew, as a medically qualified, as is so nicely put in English, um, always has also keep, kept that in mind. Now, the patient and that, I think, once you have seen sick patients, you always know. The patient is always right. And if a patient dies or a mouse dies, even if you have the best explanation to negate that death, you know, the patient is always right and remains right. Now, this will be my general message. We, as scientists and human beings, cannot do better than evolution, if you use the same tools as evolution. So, for example, let's take a, you know, um, an appropriate example. If 
malaria or HIV change and mutate their outermost protective epitopes all the time, then of course to make a vaccine with a single epitope and hope for cross-protection against all HIV or all influenza is simply crazy. It doesn't work. I'll get back to that. Now, at the time, you know, when I moved from Lausanne at the time to, to Canberra, and we discussed a lot about immunology and immunity. And of course, the difference between the two is that in immunology, you talk about specificity. In immunity, the only thing you're interested in is in serotype. Because all the rest, whether an antibody binds in some lousy assay like an ELISA, is simply irrelevant. Only thing that counts is protection. Tolerance is a nice idea, but it's not more than an idea, and the only thing you can measure is no response. Memory, of course, is also a nice idea, but the only thing you are interested in as an MD is, is there protection or not? And then comes all the new stuff like regulation, networks, blah, blah, blah. But the only thing that really can be uh, taken seriously is, of course, immunopathology. Now, I don't want to belabor my old credo that there are basically two problems. Either a virus or a bacterium or a parasite kills your host cell or doesn't kill it. If it kills it, then, of course, this cytopathic agent has to be dealt with promptly within a few days, because after seven to 10 days, you are dead anyway. So the system has to work very efficiently and quickly, and there's no other way than specific immunity based on 90% or so of innate resistance, you know, provided by interference and all the like. But the non-cytopathic ones, of course, their immunology doesn't matter. In fact, immune responses, particularly of the T cell side, provide damage to the infected cell that otherwise wouldn't have been damaged. That's immunopathology. And to avoid this, these types of viruses or infections actually jump before the new host's immune system has matured, which is before, at, or briefly after birth. And that's basically what happens with all the hepatitis, hepatitis viruses, B and C, HIV, and so on. And LCMV in the mouse, of course, is the artist champion in that because that virus even jumps before birth through the placenta. So the virus is basically taken as self. And you all know that for Burnett, that experiment of prenatal vertical transmission and non-responsiveness against a virus which by definition is a foreign, uh, has been the prime motor to formulate the idea of uh, immunological tolerance as for Medawar, of course, the twin calf experience. Now, when I moved, after having tried surgery for two years and some biochemistry, where I sort of got exposed to the problem of maternal antibodies as a key protective mechanism for the offspring, not only the transplacental uh, transfer, but also mother's milk as a local 
um, passive protection of the newborn. I got to, to Canberra where together and by chance with Peter Doherty stuck together in the same lab, we did the following experiment. And Peter was excellent in tapping cerebrospinal fluid in mice. And you can easily imagine there's not too much of that around. About one, two, three, maybe on a good day, five microliters. And you get them in the fourth ventricle through the pectin by, you know, bending the neck correctly. So, what was um, the problem? The problem with this infection by LCMV was that if you stuck the virus into the brain by intracerebral injection, all the mice died within seven to eight days. And this correlated with a cytotoxic T-cell activity against infected but not uninfected target cells. Um, and at the same time, particularly during the 60s, there had been many reports, because remember, HLA was started to be defined in the late 50s, that led to typing of patients as potential donors of kidneys, and that typing in a very large way led to the discovery of so-called HLA disease associations. And Walter Bodmer sits somewhere in the audience who was uh, very much part of, that, of those studies. So we argued, you know, is there MHC disease association in this particular disease? Because we had available a whole range of mice and because Mike Oldstone and Hugh McDevitt had actually shown a slight difference in susceptibility when looking at various inbred strains of mice as to this meningitis. So we did a simple experiment at that time. We simply went to the, the um, animal house and picked all the inbred strains and heterozygotes F1s that we had available to do the following experiment. You infect mice with that virus and you see exclusively, at least in the first few days, the virus replicates in the, in the, in the corimeninges. And after six or seven days you find that in a nude mouse you don't see any inflammation, whereas in a T-cell competent mouse you find this inflammatory process, and within the cerebrospinal fluid, you could isolate T cells that actually were extremely efficient in killing infected targets, but didn't touch uh, normal targets. So Peter got um, the uh, cerebrospinal fluid cells. I did the killer assay, and we split all these mice we infected into, you know, two mice were taken for the cytotoxicity assay in vitro, and the rest of the mice we simply let go at day seven. Remember, all mice with T cells eventually should die by day seven to nine. And in fact, that was the case. All the mice, except for the nude mice that don't have T cells, died within that delay. We did the cytotoxicity assay on day day seven, and this was actually, you know, really 
experiment number one, two, and three. This CBA is a H2K mouse. And this gave, at day seven after LCMV infection, 65 uncorrected type of killing of infected target cells on normal cells, 17% chromium release. At that time, we still all were very honest. We just put simply down the numbers. No <laughs> interpretation. But interesting, you see, the bulb C's, they didn't touch these infected targets, nor did the blacks. The F1s, where one parent was a, a, an H2K, killed again. Of course, the nudes didn't. Then we added a few more of K's, D's. The K's again killed the others. Not. So that was it. You know, if you were H2K, you had cytotoxic T cells and killed this target cell, but there was now a discrepancy. The test showed one thing, namely that only H2K mice had T cells that killed, but all mice clinically were sick and died. So what do you believe? You know, is the test faulty or are the patients faulty? And of course the patient is always right. So we went back and it was very easy then to discover that the only fibroblast target cell line we had were L929 cells. Well, the L is a very old cell line derived from C3H mice. C3H and CBAs are, so to say, half-brothers. They come from the same source, both are H2K. So by mere luck, was the only mouse cell line in at John Curtin was H2K. L cells. They use them for plaquing smallpox and, and things like that. And by mere luck, the house mouse that we use for everything was CBA, H2K. Nowadays, using only black sixes on an L cell, we wouldn't have, you know, been able to discover anything. So, conclusion. Sometimes you're lucky. And circumstances are such that you are at the right spot in the right environment you have the right tools and you can't do anything about it i mean if they didn't have had the cbh mice and the l cell yeah forget it so there are things you can't influence also for example my wife with two small kids could have said you know are you crazy to move from lausanne and lovely Switzerland to bushy Australia. Forget <laughs> it, you know. So there are many factors that contribute. And remember one important thing. At that time, this was 1973. You know, there was, it was a different time. At that time, the rule was, and I get to that because some representatives sit here, if you cannot do structure, do function. That was the general rule. And then came the structuralist and solved all this, you know, including Alan Townsend and Mark Davies and Tack Max and all these persons. <laughs> now things have changed, you know. Now we know how to do structure so well 
that actually it's much easier than function. So nowadays the rule is if you cannot do function, do structure. <laughs> okay. Now, I'd like to keep that general theme that function and disease keeps us honest because the patient is always right. So let's now look at specificity in immunological terms. You see, when you take influenza virus or a rabies virus, then you find that the envelope of these viruses actually exhibits hemagglutinins or glycoproteins that are tightly packed. And because they are so tightly packed, an antibody cannot squeeze in between the glycoproteins or the hemagglutins. So only the tips of these structures are available and accessible to antibodies. And only to one antibody kind, namely the neutralizing antibody type. There's no all these dreams and hopes and hypes about cross-protective neutralizing antibodies that bind to the stem, simply forget them. They won't work. <laughs> so here, you know, it's that antibody that basically fits to the glycoprotein, to the trimer. And when you compare that to a hapton, to a DNP, you know, then there's a huge size difference because a hapton corresponds to a six-carbon type of amino acid. So the binding quality of a hapton is, of course, much, much, much smaller than to a multi-point interaction as for neutralizing antibodies. And therefore, it's no surprise that the binding strength of the neutralizing antibodies 10 to the minus 9, whereas for, for hapton, like a phenyl group, it's 10 to the minus 5. So you can easily measure that stuff by ELISA, but it's irrelevant because you measure down here and you should have measured things up here. And therefore, it's no surprise either that these B cells are extremely rare, namely 1 in 10 to the 5 or something like this, whereas these lousy antibodies are 1 in 50 to 1 in 100. So, of course, if that is so, then the old so-called carrier Hafton rule falls apart. Because we all know if you are immune against polio 1 and you get hit by polio 2, you don't make an accelerated response to polio 2. It's simply, clinically, it's not the case. Despite the fact that 95-99% of all T helper determinants are shared between polio 1 and 2. The same is true for, for, for influenza viruses. So therefore, look at the classic Lecaria-Hapton experiment where, I mean, Alamitis and Rajevsky and so on in the 60s. BSA, U prime, and you come back with BSA to which you have hooked this nonsense happen, you find that now your anti-DNP responses are secondary. If you have taken the wrong carrier, then it's a primary. And that's the so-called carrier rule. But if you take a virus, in our case we used um, a rabies-like virus called 
vesicular stomatitis virus. There are two serotypes, well, there are many more. We used New Jersey and, uh, and Indiana. So you prime with New Jersey or not. And then you come back with VSV Indiana. And you find that if you come back with the Indiana strain, your neutralizing response is strictly a primary. That's exactly like in polio. And there's no difference whether you had seen the other serotype before or not. It's strictly a primary. But if you hook a little bit of DNP onto those, those viruses and monitor the anti-DNP response, you can confirm what you know, everybody has written in the textbook. You get a secondary response against DNP. But of course, this is only because with a highly frequent B cell, one in a hundred, your T help becomes the limiting factor. So if you butter in more T help, you improve your performance. But if your B cell is a limiting factor, namely the neutralizing high affinity 10 to the mine, nine type of quality, then your T help is never limiting. It's always plenty of T help. Now, another dogma in the textbooks is, of course, that there must be affinity maturation. And highly or more highly matured antibodies have a better binding quality and therefore can bind or can protect at lower concentrations. And that contributes to the so-called memory quality because your long-term matured response is much better. Well, it turns out this is not true. You either hit the right quality right within the first five to seven days, or you're dead anyway. So there's no time for affinity maturation. And this is represented by an experiment that Martin Bachmann and Hans-Peter Rost and, and Uli Kalinke did, where we measured the binding qualities of six-day IgGs, 12 days after one boost, or the 10 boosts after 150 days, and the spectrum is all the same. It doesn't move. And the key is, of course, that you have to have quality, high-quality antibodies at very early times. And interestingly, the spectrum of genes used for these neutralizing antibodies is, at the start, very limited. One, two, three types of gene assemblies. And then there's a slight, you know, diversion and exchange of one versus the other. But basically, it's an oligoclonal high affinity type of response. And if you can't do that, you're dead. Now, the key reason for that is that because this is within the spectrum of your normal repertoire, these types of viruses, polio, measles, influenza, they all make neutralizing antibodies very early by day three, IgM, day five, IgG, uh, because by day eight or 10, it would be too late. All the non-lytic viruses, our example is LCMV, but the same is true for HIV, it's true for um, HBV, it's true for many others, malaria as well. 
you find that the ELISA antibodies are fantastic very early, like in these acute infections. But then you need maturation of your affinity over three to six months for these neutralizing antibodies slowly to come up. And by that time, when they start to come up, the virus has already mutated away, and that's why you never catch up with them. But the virus has time, because you need affinity maturation. And this reflects the repertoire. And um, this is given here. If you look at an acute virus such as VSV, and VSV is not a mouse problem in the proper sense, it's a cow problem. But still, when you take the mouse serum, natural, normal serum of an SPF for even germ-free mouse, or of a normal human, you find there's a background of a neutralization assay test titer of 1 in 20 to 1 in 30. If you take LCMV or HIV or HCV or HPV, you find there is no measurable titer in any of the protection assays. And it's that difference that gives you that rapid response because it's already in the repertoire. And you can argue that the, a virus that acutely kills, that doesn't find or isn't matched up with a proper neutralizing high affinity antibody within the existing repertoire, simply would kill the species. And if you do the in vivo assay, remember the patient is always right, you take a mouse that has no antibodies. We use, for example, mu MT mice. And you infect and titrate the LD50, the lethal dose 50 of VSV in the Asian mice. You find that about 10 to the 3 to 10 to the 4 of these viruses will kill all the mice within 10 days. If now you simply add to that antibody deprived mouse, half a milliliter of normal mouse serum from an SPF or germ-free mouse, you immediately reverse that and your LD50 goes up to 10 to the 7 to 10 to the 8. So it's the natural pre-existing repertoire that reflects what by co-selection was probed within the system. And this response is strictly, at least in the early, you know, IgM, simply T-help independent, because very high titers get induced in mice that do not have T-cells. So the repetitiveness of the multimeric identical determinant simply kicks off the IgM B-cell response in the complete absence of T-help, and these IgMs represent what is present already in the repertoire, the germline um, genes, but there are slightly somatically varied types of antibodies already pre-existent. Now, you can beat the system and simply redraw a virus. And this is done here in the case of HIV. You see, instead of showing the real virus, you simply show a monomer or a trimer as a 
unique structure. And now you say, well, there's plenty of common determinants, and therefore I make antibodies against these determinants, and they must cross-protect because I believe so. Then you do that, and in your lousy assay in vitro, of course, you can demonstrate it, and you send it to cell or science, and they happily um, accept it because everybody hopes for this hype. But it's useless, because a virus is not constructed in this, in this way. Now, let me finish with some ideas about so-called memory. The definition of memory, of course, is, I mean, that is what you have to fight for, dear Andrew. Memory, you know. <laughs> it's all the way down, downhill. But memory is said to be quicker and higher. This is immunology. This is not humans. Huh? <laughs> and what the classic experiment is you take sheep red blood cells. Of course, the LD50 of sheep red blood cells is about... 10 to the 15, I guess, because you clog up. But, you know, you, you get a response, an antibody response, then it drops off. And then if you re-challenge, it's quicker and higher. That's memory. The key question, of course, is does quicker and higher protect you from reinfection? That's all the rest is irrelevant. And of course, we, we know that we have immune protection against certain viruses, and we don't get against others. So now, if you want to study academic memory to be published in journal immunology, then you must use ELISAs. Because if you use ELISAs, you find that your titer is driven up very high, and then it drops off very, very, very slowly, longer than 300 days. And because of the half-life of postdocs and doctoral students, you know, usually experiments are done within the next two months or three months. You don't wait for two years. But humans have to wait for, for two or four years. If, however, you don't want to work on, on, on academic uh, memory, then take a neutralizing antibody assay. Because there you see that neutralizing antibodies also reach very high titers, but then they drop off before 100 days, below what we call and clinically have documented so-called protective levels. And this is well defined. I mean, if you are at a certain or above a certain title, then you are protected. If you're below, you're not protected. So let's do a simple experiment. And this is Hans-Peter Rost, who did that at the time. You prime a mouse with, let's say, this rabies virus. And then you take memory T and B cells after two or three months. You adoptively transfuse them to a normal recipient. You challenge with the same virus that mice all die. With sheep red blood cells, you would have gotten a different uh, result because you ha would have had time for the you know, quicker and higher response coming up. But the key is also that quicker and higher takes five to seven days. So it's not absolutely quick and high. It's simply slightly better than in a non-prime mouse. And this quicker and higher in the academic setting is simply still too slow to protect you. So you have to have pre-existing titers. And this is simply reflected by the second half of the experiment where he took the serum from that mouse 
adoptively transfused and now uh, challenged and they all survive. And this of course is exactly the experiment we all have survived when we got born because our mother has transfused protective antibodies via the pickup through FC gamma receptors of the maternal IgG up and we were born with a good mortgage, let's say, of immunological experience. The calf is even more complicated because it's a double membrane type of placental construction with no transport mechanism. So calves are born without immunoglobulin. That's why we use fetal calf serum. We don't want to have to have antibodies in our tissue culture. But they pick up the antibody via the FC receptor on the gut epithelial cells, drinking the first milk, the colostral milk, which is a concentrate of IgG and IgA, and that then within 18 hours replenishes uh, the repertoire. So, of course, then we can say antibodies determine protection of the next generation because it's the anti-X protection that is transfused to the newborn. And if the mother is not already immune, she gets killed by X anyway, and the fetus. If after being born, you get re-exposed to X because you live in a normal epidemiological environment, then your antibody will attenuate that infection, but will at the same time, with some, with some delay, immunize you actively and that protects you. If, however, this first exposure is delayed and doesn't have the cover of the maternal antibody, then you have a problem. And this, of course, is the case of polio in, um, in, uh, in the 50s uh, that really led to, to, um, to the development of fantastically active um, vaccines. So, these are my general conclusions. Measurements should be accurate, of course, but do we really measure what we should measure? And ELISA, in general, you know, it doesn't measure what we want. Begging for the question versus observation, I definitely would go for observation and clinical questioning. Of course, once everything is known, every detail, then any new smallest detail can be placed correctly. But let's say we know 5% or 10% to be on the optimistic side. I think we cannot place things so T-regulatory cells are up for grabs. You know. um, wrong interpretations and promises and hopes are not punished. That's one of the big problems we have, particularly in a weak or soft area like immunology. And I have some examples here. And I think clinical observations keep us definitely honest. Thank you. <laughs>